Hi, this is Panel Beater and this is the podcast of Triple R's Radiotherapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page. Hello everybody and welcome to this Sunday morning's radiotherapy show on 3RRR. Good morning to all those tuning in on 102.7 FM, online or on podcast. It's great to have you all on the show. My name is Dr. Moto and it is my great pleasure to deliver the jam-packed show we have for you today. A whole hour of exploration and discussion about medicine, health, psychiatry and everything else related. In the studio with me today, there are veteran panellists. Panel Beater and Dr. Doolittle. Seasoned listeners would know Dr. Doolittle is currently in the tropical north, learning how healthcare is being delivered to remote and indigenous communities, and I look forward to hearing from him. I'm grateful to Dr. Doolittle for joining us today via TallyHealth. And onto our show, uh, and onto our guests for today's show, I'm delighted to have joined me today Dr. Toby Winton Brown and Professor Marie Bismarck, who are dedicated, skin-in-the-game, feet-pounding-the-pavement psychiatrists and researchers um, who have done a lot of work assessing and treating patients one after the other, questioning and investigating the quandaries of neuroscience one problem after another. Dr. Toby and Dr. Marie are from two separate but similarly large-sized metropolitan health networks in Melbourne and have both been actively researching the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic on healthcare workers in our previously dormant but now bustling metropolis. Well, perhaps the dormant description wasn't so justified where Dr. Toby and Dr. Marie have been spending the day today. I'm sure things have been extremely busy. How are you, Dr. Toby and Dr. Marie? Very well, thanks, Moto. Nice to be here. Good morning. Very well. Thank you for the invitation. I'm looking forward to hearing what you have to say. I know you have exciting and fascinating findings from your research into the rates of psychological distress and anxiety and burnout amongst healthcare professionals. Um, and if we ask nicely, they might even share stories, teeny, teeny glimpses of anecdotes of what it was actually like to be working on a COVID ward managing the state of staff tension in emergency departments and ICUs and other stressful accounts, perhaps, on the frontline battle against COVID-19. Stick around because we'll uh, patch on to uh, Dr. Toby and Dr. Marie to hear from them um, shortly. Firstly, let's start with some news. Dr. Doolittle, normally you're in my seat today. Where are you, firstly, and what are you up to? Well, um, Moto, I'm, as I mentioned, I'm in Cairns. And, and before I say anything, big thank you to, for stepping in and uh, filling in hosting duties for the next five months whilst I'm away. So I'm doing a sabbatical up in Cairns. And, uh, you know, I, mean, I think most people are probably aware, a sabbatical sort of like a recharge your work and academic batteries. And the idea is you go somewhere, you learn some new skills, and hopefully you bring those skills back to uh, your hospital. And this particular sabbatical I'm on is looking at Indigenous models of healthcare for both cancer and mental health. So I'm in Cairns for two months and then I'm in Darwin for two months. And the Cairns bit, I've already started. I'm two weeks in. And essentially, um, I'm working on the rural and remote team going to various communities around Cape York Peninsula. So my first week away, I was in the Torres Strait Islands and doing clinics in, I went to three different islands doing clinics. Next week on tomorrow, Monday, I fly off to Cooktown and I do some clinics in Cooktown and around 
um, Cooktown in the community, such as Hope Vale and places like that. I think the third trip is off to Weeper. Um, so, yeah, it's a really, it's an amazing opportunity to go and sort of, um, you know, look and listen and try and learn how um, how a hospital, CANS and the Hinterland Health Service up here, how they provide their care to Indigenous communities and hopefully learn some good lessons and uh, bring them bring those lessons back to uh, Peter Mack in Melbourne. I'm sure there's been thousands of observations already so far, but what's been one standout? Well, you know, it's hard to say because it's early days. You know, the main thing I'm trying to do at the moment is keeping my ears open and my mouth shut, to be honest, um, and just watching and seeing how it's done. You know, I guess the main thing is, you know, I've only was in Torres Strait Islands for a week, but I probably, you know, I did about eight clinics in that time. I mean, apart from the obvious that the, you know, not many people get to go to the Torres Strait off the tip of Cape York Peninsula, but it is just magnificent um, part of Australia. Beautiful islands and amazing communities that have, you know, been there obviously forever. And, uh, and so it's really quite interesting. The actual mental health is relatively similar, but the huge difference that I obviously that everyone notices is that you're working in a very different cultural environment with many different languages. So you you rely heavily on the Indigenous health workers who provide you with context, translation when it's required, and all sorts of other things to try and tailor the mental health care to the needs of the community and the beliefs, cultures and languages. So it's, it's, it's a fascinating experience, but it's very early days. I, I suspect I better maintain my policy of keeping my mouth shut and my ears open for a few, for, for, quite, a, for quite a while yet. Well, thank you for sharing your preliminary observations so far, Dr. Doolittle, and I'm sure we'll hear more about um, what you see and what you learn in the months to come. Turning the spotlight back to uh, where it's just as beautiful, but in slightly different ways, um, turning the spotlight back to Victoria. The big news this week has to be the release of the final report of the Royal Commission into Victoria's Mental Health Services. Those of you following this news would know that the report was tabled at a special sitting at the Victorian Parliament on this Tuesday past, except the sitting was held at Carlton's Royal Exhibition Centre. To offer the listeners a teaser, Radiotherapy next week will feature a deep dive into the Royal Commission's findings and recommendations. I'm told ultra-special guests have been lined up, including those who were actively involved to inform to the Royal Commission. I can't wait to hear what they have to say. As a brief overview, however, and I would also like to hear from our panellists about what they've read so far into the Royal Commission's final report, but perhaps I'll play a part, a small part, in just providing a brief overview. So at its beginning, the Royal Commission was established in February 2019 to comprehensively evaluate a mental health system described as, I quote, broken and dysfunctional, so that recommendations can be made to build a system that is more compassionate accessible, effective and innovative. The enormity of the body of work invested can only be described as stratospheric. Just some numbers, some quick facts. The Commission considered more than 12,500 contributions from individuals and organisations. More than 3,000 respondents to the Community Sentiment Survey conducted. More than 150 statements from persons who have been consumers of Victoria's mental health services. The, the, the sheer numbers are staggering, and I can go on and on and on. In the end, 65 recommendations were made covering mental health recognition, access, support, and treatment needs of all Victorians ranging from infants to older Victorians. 
In the community, in hospital and in custodial settings, no one was left behind. No demographic of our community have been neglected. All of this is explained in high levels of detail with accessible and uh, easy to read summaries all on the website, which is finalreport.crcvmhs.vic.gov.au or just Google Royal Commission into Victoria's Mental Health Services. What do our guests, what do our panellists think about what's been happening? Um, well, do you want me to start off um, there uh, on that um, one moto? Yes, please. Yes, yeah, so, you know, we've been waiting for this for a long time, obviously. And, um, you know, in terms of, you know, background, it's probably worth noting that, that we had various five-year reports and other reports in the last 20 years, but they never really got to... Um, they never really had the outcomes any of us wanted. So this Royal Commission was was hugely anticipated because those of us who work in the system, you know, we all know that it's full of incredibly passionate people trying their best. But, you know, it is broken. It's underfunded. It's, dis, it's disjointed. There's not enough services in the community, not enough beds. And essentially most of the findings related to that, that the service was heavily medical, far too much emphasis on medication, not enough emphasis on well-being and psychology, not nearly enough emphasis on consumer input, the Mental Health Act, even though it's been um, redesigned a couple of times in the last 20 years, is still overly biased towards involuntary treatment. And so they came out with these 65 recommendations on top of about, I think it was nine or 10 recommendations from the interim report last year. And, um, you know, essentially, look, you know, my initial, you know, we can talk about some of the nuts and bolts, but my initial impression was it just, it was beautiful. It's like a for me, it looked like a five to ten year roadmap of how to build a world class mental health system. Um, and so my initial impressions, you know, overall were, you know, everything I read in it was, you know, I was just found myself sitting there nodding, going, yeah, yeah, and we need that. Yeah, yeah. That was my initial impressions. I wonder, what did you think, panel beta? Oh, thanks, um, Doolittle. Yeah, look, I'm, I'm just conscious of uh, time, but maybe my headline um, statement would be I, I'm really keen to keep an eye on the moment in time. Um, there's got to be this political will. If any of these 65 or so recommendations are going to happen, there needs to be a political will. The political will co will come from the social pressure and the context in which that uh, in which the politics is working. Um, we've had uh, an interesting couple of weeks up in Canberra. Perhaps um, given uh, the presentation of mental health in that story. Perhaps there's some um, state-level leverage that can be taken. I'm going to stay as optimistic as I can for as long as I can um, with this. Um, it is exciting, but um, we know historically uh, when you have 65 recommendations or 66, 65, um, uh, we've, got to, we've got to manage those expectations somehow. But let's see how we go. Thank you very much for that, panel Beta and Doolittle. Okay, we'll take a very quick break. We'll just cut across some station announcements. We'll be right back to hear from Dr. Marie. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favorite podcast platform. This is the first radiotherapy show of autumn 2021. And might I also add, this month marks the 25th anniversary of this show being on 3RRR. So thank you for all our listeners um, and for the team for putting, making the show together for the past two and a half decades. I am Dr. Moto and with me in the studio today are Dr. Doolittle, 
the one and only panel beater, and we are talking about COVID-19's impact on Melbourne's healthcare workers. I'm excited to be joined by our guests, senior clinicians at a couple of Melbourne's large tertiary referral centres and their research into this topic. First on the show, we have Professor Marie Bismarck. Professor Bismarck is a public health physician and health lawyer who leads the Law and Public Health Group at the University of Melbourne. She is undertaking specialist training in psychiatry and amongst all her other competing roles is mother of three children. So Marie, first things first, how do you fit it all in? Or how do you fit it all in? I feel tired just saying that, just introducing you. Thanks, Leo. Um, look, I'm just endlessly curious about people and about the healthcare system, and I love having these multiple roles. I think there are some people who become very deep specialists in one small area, but I'm someone who really loves being able to weave threads of ideas together, and I think doing the research work improves my clinical work, and the clinical work informs my leadership roles. Um, being a working, working mum makes me a better mum to my kids and, and having children, I think, probably makes me a better psychiatry registrar. So somehow it all fits together. That's truly inspirational. Marie, tell us about the work you've been doing. Mm. So I've been really privileged to be part of the Australian Frontline Healthcare Workers Study. Um, and I want to acknowledge the two chief investigators on that study, Professor Karen Willis and Associate Professor Natasha Smallwood. So this is a survey. Of, we had responses from nearly 10,000 frontline clinicians across Australia telling us about their experiences of working through the COVID pandemic. It's um, one of the largest studies in the world of clinicians' experiences of the pandemic and looking through the responses and the findings has been incredibly moving. What have been the findings so far? I think something that really has struck me is how complex people's emotional responses have been and it's really timely that we're doing the show today because it's the one-year anniversary of our last week of normal before the pandemic was declared on the 12th of March last year. Um, so really, humans can contain a multitude of emotions, and that's what we're seeing in this survey, that some people felt a profound sense of gratitude, that life slowed down a little bit, that they had more time with their family, that the world became a quieter place in some ways. Some people felt tremendous grief, for friends and family that they were separated from. I certainly experienced that. My two older children, my husband and my parents are all in New Zealand. So while I was working in the hospital, there was nearly a year when I was separated from immediate family members. So a real sense of collective grief around that. There were some people who felt very betrayed that they had trusted that their health service would care for them and keep them safe. Um, and some people, particularly nurses working in aged care, felt very betrayed by the system, that they didn't feel that they were being provided with the personal protective equipment that they needed. And probably one of the key emotions was exhaustion, that clinicians felt physically and emotionally and socially exhausted by the rapid pace of change and the pervasiveness of it. I think we all work in very busy jobs, but usually when you get home, you can get some respite from your work. Whereas one of the defining features of the pandemic is that there was no respite. 
that you would be surrounded by COVID at work. You would drive home, turn on the radio. It would just be everything about the pandemic on the radio as you're driving home. You'd get home, you'd have children who were homeschooling at home, so you're dealing with the challenges of the pandemic at home, trying to meet the needs of extended family members. Um, so really this sense of, of pervasiveness that you were living the pandemic both at home and at work. I can relate to many of those, and I'm sure our panellists and uh, our listeners can all as well. Just in a, a, a very quick step back, um, when... Uh, researchers conduct surveys, the data or the information that we're trying to gather can be simply or dichotomously divided into what we call quantitative research. So they're numbers oriented, yes, no responses, choose A, B, C, D. And then there's the qualitative components of um, surveying and research where you're not asking for just categorical values or numbers or yes and no's. You're trying to get the emotional content. You're trying to get the story, hence the qualitative um, um, nature of uh, data that we're trying to gather here. And Marie, listening to your uh, um, research findings, um, I suppose I'm taken aback by a lot of the research that you're doing are very much qualitative and um, narrative um, emotional content. Would that be a fair summary? So the study had both quantitative and qualitative components. And as a researcher, I think it's so important to have both. I always think that the hard data is the skeleton. That's the bones of your work and that the stories put the flesh on the bones. So this study had both the quantitative and the qualitative. Um, my colleagues have been taking the lead on the quantitative analysis where we, you know, carried out burnout scores and asked people to respond to anxiety and depression scales and calculated their resilience. So there was certainly that part of the study. Um, and then I've been taking the lead on some of the more qualitative analyses, which are the stories that people told us. What was really extraordinary about this survey is that right at the end of the survey, there was a question saying, is there anything else that you want to tell us? Um, anyone who's done survey research knows that usually most people don't really answer that question. But what was extraordinary here is that we received 250,000 words of stories where people wanted to share their experience and their emotions, um, their grief and their gratitude and their pain and their hopes and their fears. So um, I've been really immersed in those stories. Doolittle, you had a question. One of the things that always struck me early on in the pandemic, um, Marie, and was the impact of uncertainty. And I'm trying to put this into a question because as healthcare workers, we're used to treating illness, but normally we're not engaged in it as well. And as a healthcare worker, we were had the dual sort of roles of treating, helping, exploring, yet at the same time, being at risk a lot of our colleagues mm. you know we were one of the highest risk groups and so I wonder you know I guess what I'm getting at is how did that sense of uncertainty did the, the uncertainty come through as one of the themes in the qualitative mm. research that you know how do you deal with the unknown how do you deal with going to work when you don't know what's going going to happen you know we're so used to having algorithms to deal with what we do and that and the algorithms are like our safety blanket in a sense and all of a sudden we had no algorithms 
We didn't know what was going to happen in two or three months' time. We didn't know how dangerous the illness was early on. We didn't know what the fatality rate was. We didn't know what the best treatment were. We heard gossip about all sorts of treatments and theories about, you know, everything from hydrochloroquine to you know what. I wondered if that sense of uncertainty came through in your surveys. I'm just going to quickly chime in here, Doolittle. I can, I, what you're saying really resonated with me. I mean, looking back now, and uh, Marie, it's also interesting to hear you remind us that, you know, we are 12 months into since when COVID-19 was announced as a global pandemic, right? And I remember at around Easter time this year, no one had any idea what was going to happen. The, the theme of uncertainty that Doolittle talked about, um, we could have become the next Valencia. We could have become the next Milan, you know? Um, right. And I, I, I was rostered on call at the Alfred Hospital during that Easter week and going in each day, um, you know, going to the mental health wards, the emergency departments, you know, taking referrals from the ICU. So do little, I, what you said definitely just mm. um, reminded me of all those emotions stirring up at that time. Marie. Mm. Absolutely. And, and I've got a, a quote here from one of our survey respondents who said, it's not COVID itself that's the stress, it's the ongoing, unrelenting change that's exhausting. Uncertainty of lockdowns, changing criteria for testing, roster changes, new rules, changes to friendships and social constructs. Every day there is something new and we are fatigued from it. So absolutely, that came through really strongly. And people were so aware of what was happening to our colleagues overseas. I think that medical specialists around the world are very tightly connected. So people were in WhatsApp groups with their colleagues in Italy or in London and very fearful that what we were seeing there would come next. You made a comment about fear of infecting family members. I'd certainly experienced that when I was caring for patients with mental illness on the COVID ward. It wasn't my own health I was worried about. I was worried about making my child sick. And I would come home at the end of the day, stand in the hallway to our house, take off my scrubs, sanitise my hands, put everything into a garbage bag, get it straight into the washing machine, have a shower before I hugged my daughter at the end of the day. And that was a very new experience for us. And in the survey, many people said that it wasn't fear for their own health. It was concern that they might make vulnerable family members sick or that they might be a vector of communicate of contagion that would make other patients sick as well. So I was immensely grateful to receive my vaccine this week. Um, my hospital has started vaccinating frontline healthcare workers. Um, and as we come up to the one-year anniversary, I'm so grateful to all of the scientists and researchers who were involved in making that vaccine available for us. Absolutely. Couldn't agree more. Marie, how do you bring together the qualitative data? How do you bring together emotional content? When we're talking about quantitative measures, numbers, mm. uh, you know, 1.0s and 56 and yes and no's and A's and B's, we have statistical modelling to help crunch the numbers for us. How do you do your work? How do you analyse the qualitative data? So I spend a lot of time immersing myself in it. I read these stories and reread them and then begin to identify the themes. So the approach so far has been this idea that there are really these um, kind of eight core groups of emotions that people experience 
um, you know, as I mentioned earlier, anything from from sadness to anger to hope. And so I grouped together all of the similar comments relating to these different emotions was one aspect of the analysis. But then I also looked at the responses in terms of what they were telling us about individuals and teams and organisations and systems. Um, So we could see that there were a lot of comments on the response of the healthcare system as as a whole, what people thought about the political response, then people talking about their organisation's response. Um, At the team level, the incredible support that many people felt, felt from team members, and then how it impacted on individuals. And then you go back and reread all of the stories again and, and think about whether there are any other themes that you might have missed. It's really trying to give voice and, and honour what we were told by those survey respondents and recognising the complexity of what they were telling us. Do little. Um, I've got a question for you, Marie. Now, every hospital tried to respond differently, you know, and some of the hospital responses I um, heard about were really thorough, like hospitals had mental health teams supporting their healthcare workers. Others had their CEOs given twice weekly updates, sometimes three weeks. A lot of hospitals had wellbeing sessions online with Q&A. Some hospitals had music therapy doing, you know, once a week music stuff. Mm. Did you get a sense from the research what responses worked best and what um, the healthcare workers appreciated from their organisations? Yeah, that's a fantastic question. And the flip side of the question is there were some things that didn't work well. One thing we do know from the survey is that health workers are incredibly resilient people. So any responses that felt trite or patronising were not well received. You know, anything that suggested that healthcare workers needed to be more resilient was generally not well received. The things that really worked, um, I think, were, were open and honest communication. As we said earlier, sometimes the uncertainty is the hardest thing to deal with. So when health practitioners felt that whatever the leaders of the organisation knew was being shared with them, that helped to engender trust. I think a focus on relationships helped. So acknowledging the demands that people were under at home, providing additional support to people who were homeschooling young children at home, recognising that the social distancing was affecting team dynamics and making an additional effort to help bring teams together and help teams to remain connected. So it was often those interpersonal responses that made a huge difference. Can I just ask too, what about the more practical things? Like I noticed at my hospital, some of the things that seemed to really be appreciated were parking so that no one had to catch public transport, free scrubs so that people could change in and out of clothes, food being brought to um, the hospital, all the little things like one of the big mm. bookstores in Melbourne donated a whole lot of books for um, healthcare workers and and all of those things, you know, that was just seen as such a nice gesture, mm. you know, so it was often the practical things I thought about, I thought seemed to have yeah. an impact as well. Absolutely. And that was very much my personal experience as a registrar working through the pandemic. I remember one particular shift where I'd been at the hospital for 16 hours. The cafeteria was closed because of the pandemic. I was 
exhausted and tired and hungry. And I opened the fridge and there were these meals made um, by Alex Makes Meals, who's a young guy who started making a lasagna for his sister, who was a healthcare worker, and ended up making tens of thousands of meals for healthcare workers all around Melbourne. And the sense of gratitude and care and support I felt as I ate that one meal that was sitting there in the fridge for me at the end of a long shift made an enormous difference. And I think for the rest of my life, when I look back on the pandemic, I will remember that sense of of care and support from the community. Alex, if you are out there and you're listening to 3RRR Radiotherapy this momentous Sunday, thank you. Thank you on behalf of Marie, of course, but also Melbourne's healthcare workers. That's excellent. Marie, how, what impact do you expect your research would have on um, how healthcare workers are supported um, going into the future, COVID or mm. non-COVID? Um, mm, that's a fantastic question, Dr. Moto. So... The approach of the research team has been that this is not going to be the last crisis that we face, that particularly with climate change, we can expect to see more extreme weather events. And, you know, as we all know, Victoria was really just coming out of a devastating bushfire season when the pandemic hit. And so the lessons coming from this research about what is helpful for clinicians, what are the pre-existing tensions in the healthcare system that get fractured wide open during a crisis, how can we really support health workers to do the best job of caring for patients. I think those are all lessons that will be really important as we go into future crises. And I think there is a lot that we can learn from the response. Certainly, almost everyone was doing the best they could with what they knew, And there's also a time to look back and reflect and ask about whether we make the right decisions. One thing that came through really strongly in the survey was that the um, very strong visitor restrictions were perceived by many clinicians and family members to have been unreasonably blunt. Yes. That there is enormous value to people in aged care facilities and undergoing acute procedures in hospital to having a loved one present with them. And while I understand that those visitor restrictions were imposed for all of the right reasons, that's one of the areas where we think it's really worth reflecting and asking ourselves, could we have had a more nuanced response and could we have done more to keep people connected with their loved ones during this crisis? I couldn't have put it better myself. Thank you very much for sharing your research findings. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos, and interviews, head to the Triple R website, rrr.org.au. We have our special guests, Associate Professor Marie Bismarck from the University of Melbourne and Dr. Toby Winton Brown from the Alfred Hospital. Both Toby and Marie have been doing work and research into how COVID-19 has impacted healthcare workers. I know from personal experience, because Toby and I know each other well, um, over the course of last year, we started an initiative called Alfred Minds, where we put together a collective of healthcare workers and uh, mental health workers to support the mental health of healthcare workers at the Alfred Hospital. So it's a little bit uh, by us, for us kind of an approach. 
Dr. Wyndham Brown is a consultant liaison psychiatrist and neuropsychiatrist at Alfred Health and a research fellow at Monash University. What a consultation liaison psychiatrist does is they are psychiatrists, but rather than working in a mental health clinic or a ward, they work amongst our other medical um, peers in the general medical and surgical wards and wherever they're needed pretty much in the hospital setting to provide assessments and interventions for uh, patients as well as staff. Toby, how are you? I'm well, thanks, Dr. Meadow. How are you going? Very good. Thank you for joining us on the show. Firstly, tell us about what things have been like for you in the last 12 months, particularly when the pandemic hit, when things were becoming more and more uncertain and looking pretty stressful. What were things like um, going to work day to day for you and what were you seeing on the ground? Well, I think it, it changed a lot. I mean, it, the, the memory of the year is a really sort of diverse and dynamic one. And, and I think that was, that was one of the things that, um, that I really noticed going around the wards at the beginning. As a liaison psychiatrist, as you know, you go to emergency, ICU, respiratory, ID, all these places where the impact of COVID was coming. And people were, were worried, but they were energised at the beginning. And there was this sort of real spirit of it sort of, anticipation and, and suddenly things were able to happen uh, that had been sort of planned for a long time because people were energised by the impending crisis. Um, and then things sort of with the waves of lockdown and, and the, the, the different developments that happened with colleagues overseas, that really changed and people became sort of quite tired and disillusioned and, and then it became a, a long sort of slog. So I think it was a really changeable time, but a fascinating time uh, to try and capture some of the experiences of healthcare workers as well. Toby, you were very much skin in the game as a consultant liaison psychiatrist working across all the Alfred's wards, especially amongst uh, the frontline workers in the emergency department, um, in uh, the ICU. Can you give our listeners a, a bit of a sense, a bit of a glimpse of what it would have been like if they were a fly on the wall or if they were uh, uh, wheeling patients across the corridors together? Um, what was what were the conversations? What was the emotional tension? Well, there was some sort of slightly unexpected things because there was a lot of tension and, and anticipation, but actually, paradoxically, it was amongst the quietest periods it's been uh, in emergency for various reasons. People were mostly staying away um, because they didn't want to get COVID. And so there's a lot of change, a lot of anticipation of change. And a lot of sitting around, which for people who, who like the action of the ED and the ICU, that's a little bit um, unsettling. And, and so actually walking around as a psychiatrist in those settings, suddenly you were very popular. And, and I was asked to, to increasingly give workshops and talks with people about how they deal with this. And it is exactly as, uh, as you guys were saying, it was uncertainty and how you manage that uncertainty, particularly when the, the default mechanisms for managing stress and uncertainty have been snatched away, when you can't see people, when you can't see friends and family so easily, and when you can't get away from the damn thing. It's on the news, it's on everyone's mind. And as well as doing it at work, everyone outside of work is looking to you for some guidance and some some sort of uh, some certainty yourself. So I think it was a, a really tough time. Um, it was it was really out of those meetings and, and workshops in, in each of those places that we, we started to develop the idea for our research as well. 
Marie, I'd love to hear your response to that. Mm, We certainly saw that in our survey as well, that people had really finely calibrated coping mechanisms, which were often taken away from them, that, you know, their local gym was closed. They, you know, couldn't go to book club anymore. The five kilometre restrictions meant that their usual ability to go for a long bike ride was taken away from them. And I think that was was quite destabilising for some people that they had spent years or decades learning how to manage their mental health in very stressful environments. And suddenly those coping mechanisms were no longer available to them. And for you, Doolittle, we couldn't even come into the studio. We couldn't even come into the radiotherapy studio. Yeah, you know, it was interesting. I, I Like um, Toby, I found myself giving lots of seminars and stuff, and it was constantly getting back to basics. And I felt that, you know, if there was one thing that really came out of last year, it was the recognition of the importance of well-being or what some people might call psychological first aid. We were constantly talking to healthcare workers about the importance of looking for alternatives to those default things Toby mentioned. So we were always focusing on getting your sleep right, getting your exercise right, getting your nutrition right, not relying on too much alcohol, looking at your relationships and looking for novel ways to manage stress. And, you know, you can see it rolls off the tongue because I reckon I said that 2,000 times last year in various meetings and stuff like that, you know, how people could um, adapt to the lockdown and the changed circumstances yet still remember the basics, the basics of well-being, sleep, nutrition, exercise, relationships, stress, and looking for novel ways to do it. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and you know, one of the things I was thinking listening to Marie's um, fantastic research is, is how um, reassuring it is when your own findings in smaller samples and in particular settings are just echoed completely or, or uh, replicated, as we say. It, it makes it all seem much truer. And that's exactly the same with what you just said, Steve. I was having the same conversation as well. The, the findings we had, if I might just quickly summarise those um, in our survey, was that, um, and we also did quantitative aspects, so counting and numbers, as you said, Leo, with scales and qualitative aspects. And ours was really locked for that month of April last year. So nearly a year ago in the in the first lockdown when people were really in that curve, surfing that curve of anxiety, uncertainty, we found that about half of healthcare workers surveyed had symptoms of depression and anxiety and nearly two-thirds or or more than two-thirds actually had significant symptoms of PTSD which was actually worse than in the middle of Wuhan itself at the beginning of theirs amongst their healthcare workers and when you limited that to the moderate to severe ones the ones that psychiatrists would usually treat you still had something like one in six or one in seven with PTSD with with depression anxiety and about one in three with quite significant PTSD Um, we didn't find that was actually worse in people in the front line. And we, we found it across the whole hospital itself. What we found predicted it, and we, we did look into this, we found that burnout itself, so that, sim- that syndrome of, of exhaustion, depersonalization, and lack of sort of getting somewhere, and moral distress, this idea that you're in these situations that force you to make decisions and, and do actions that go against your, your personal moral compass. Those were the biggest predictors of our depression and anxiety in our sample. So pretty big numbers. I mean, a cross-sectional sample, so we don't know what they were like before, and that's true of most of these surveys. They're not longitudinal. But if you look at those numbers compared to point prevalence surveys, so checking numbers in the general popul- population or in healthcare workers at other times, it's, it's about a doubling. So pretty significant numbers. Do little. 
I'm wondering, with those sort of high levels, Toby, what things should we have put in place or what things were put in place to help healthcare workers get get better access to mental health support, professional support, when they needed it? Well, that's that, that's a great question, and 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 the assumption and the one that that um, we kind of operated on, and remembering that most of us were having to make decisions on the fly, and that was happening at, at all levels of leadership in health and and in policy. Uh, the assumption that we made was that people would need professional help, and so we came up very quickly with this Alfred Minds program. Actually, what we found is that wasn't utilised as much as we thought it would be. A few people did, and a few people really needed it. Um, but most people just needed the the, the normal res, uh, coping mechanisms facilitated. So the normal ways in which they debrief after stressful shifts, the normal ways of connecting with each other and reminding them of all those well-being measures, Steve, that you uh, that you kept pointing out to them as did I. One of the interesting things that um, that I found was that this this was a universal stress. This was something that everyone was going through together at the same time, and it suddenly made it okay and important to be able to talk about it and so we suddenly all were talking about how stress normally impacts us and and what we normally do to cope and how we now can't do those things that that universal uh, experience of stress and deprivation and disconnection was i think a really a really interesting um, aspect of last year's experience Mm, That's a great point, Toby. I've been reading a fantastic book by Rebecca Solnit called A Paradise Built in Hell, which is about the way that people respond after major disasters. Mm. And that sense of of everyone being in this together and how that can really bring communities together is such an important finding. And certainly for myself, you know, I was separated from some of my immediate family members and I didn't feel alone with that, that there was very much this sense of collective grief that so many grandparents hadn't been able to hug their new grandchild yet. You know, there were partners who were working across different state lines because they were in different medical roles because of their specialist training. And and so I knew that I wasn't alone in being separated from people that I cared for. And I think that there's a tremendous sense of, of solidarity and the ability to share care with other people when that occurs. Do a little... Um, you know, I know we're focusing on healthcare workers um, today, and I just want to flick for a second to patients. And the reason I ask this is because, you know, we've got a lot of um, research over the years that says that the more we support health workers in understanding their own mental health and psychological well-being, the more they'll empathise with their patients, and then the more they'll recognise what's going on for their patients. So I'm wondering, you know, do you think that all of this trauma that went, that uh, the, the experience that healthcare workers went through and the challenges that they faced, do you think it made them better clinicians or maybe a better way of putting it is do you think it flowed on to the benefits for patients? Maybe Toby first. Well, I, I think it did make um, the, the, the experience that we all went through much more common and, and it made it much easier for doctors to relate to patients and nurses to relate to patients in that respect because we could all, we could all uh, you know, we all had a similar kind of experience. So in that way, it did break down some of those those barriers for sure. Agreed. Um, and um, and so I um, I think the um, the I'm oh, sorry I've just lost my thread there. Someone else jump in. I think I was Marie. just going to say you know one of the risks with burnout is that one of the features of burnout is you can develop this um, 
approach of depersonalization. And some of the people who responded to our survey said that they were really scared about coming through this experience with their humanity intact. And that some people, when they reach a certain level of stress, they can begin to treat people as, you know, just another person in a cubicle. Um, so there was a real apprehension am among some healthcare workers that they wanted to remain connected to their sense of humanity and that they knew that they needed to care for themselves in order to be able to keep caring for others. It keeps coming yeah. full circle back to uh, what we talked about earlier. I mean, it all comes down to a sense of trust and a sense of relationships, um, relationships first and foremost with ourselves, but also with trusted confidants, whether that be family, friends, in, um, and in some instances, even colleagues or um, um, employers. Absolutely. I just wanted to round off on that one, Leo, because the, I think for the, the people in leadership positions in hospitals and, and elsewhere, it's a, it's a real bind because there is this uncertainty. And, and as Marie said earlier, you need honest and open communication, and that needs to be two ways. But you also need clear messaging and you need, you need to have as much you know, uh, under, you know, clear understanding of what your job is going to be. So I think that we had both of those messages come through strongly in our qualitative work as well, that, that strong, clear leadership and also open communication and tolerance of uncertainty, which in some ways are at odds with each other, uh, were both important things to balance. Absolutely. Well, I'm going to take this opportunity to thank our two guests today. They have been Associate Professor Marie Bismarck and Dr. Toby Winton-Brown. Thank you both very much for caring for the carers, as well as doing some really, really good research and sharing the insights of your research findings with our listeners this morning. Well, it's been a jam-packed show as always. We could sit here for another two, three days or um, weeks talking about some of these matters that are affecting our community. And, you know, I can't be, uh, I think I speak for um, everybody in this lovely city that um, it's great to see things are returning to normal. It's going to be a balmy 25, 26 degrees today. Lovely sunshine. I hope everyone's out there enjoying their their um, sojourns to the beach or the backyard barbecue, of course, in a socially distanced way, of course. Um, thanks, everybody, for listening. Thanks to our two guests again. Thank you, Panel Beater. Thank you, Doolittle. We'll see you all next week. Hi, this is Panel Beater. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Radiotherapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine, and well-being, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast. Feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page.